3: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, David Crow. Joining me in the studio today are Sam Jones, our Switzerland and Austria correspondent, Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, and Patrick Jenkins, our financial editor. Our guest this week is Jean-Pierre Mustier, the president of the European Banking Federation and the CEO of Unicredit. This week, we'll be discussing the burgeoning corporate espionage scandal at Credit Suisse, which has gripped the Swiss financial capital, the appointment of a new chief executive at Wells Fargo in the US, and the merits of the European Central Bank's negative interest rate policy. First up, a developing story on a corporate spying scandal that could easily serve as the plot for a thriller novel. Credit Suisse, which ordered the surveillance of an outgoing executive, has tried to draw a line under the events by announcing the resignation of its chief operating officer. But the story has taken a darker turn, after it emerged that a security contractor at the heart of the affair has taken their own life. Joining me down the line from Zurich to discuss the story is Sam Jones, our Switzerland and Austria correspondent. Sam, what's the latest?
1: Well, as you said, David, we heard this morning that the contractor that Credit Suisse had used as an intermediary to arrange this surveillance on one of their employees had actually tragically killed himself last week. News of that, emerged late last night and has subsequently been covered this morning in the swiss press and we had confirmation of it from the zurich prosecutor's office that's the federal authority that's responsible for overseeing criminal cases in the canton and they confirmed this morning that they were treating it as a suicide but that investigations were ongoing into the exact circumstances of his death the timing of it and of course the connections this man had with executives at Credit Suisse and whether they, I suppose, played any role in the circumstances that led to his taking his life.
3: Now, of course, this development complicates Credit Suisse's attempts to shut down the scandal by securing the resignation of its chief operating officer. But tell us what efforts the bank has tried to take to put this behind it.
1: Well, it's sort of been a series of steps that they've been taking over the last week and each one has clearly been somewhat inadequate. The first was in response to the initial revelations about surveillance on Mr Khan when it turned out that three men had been arrested because of some kind of incident in Zurich and the banks then questioned the account that had been given by people close to Mr Khan as to what had gone on. It sort of disputed the notion of an altercation or anything like that and that seemed to put rest to some of the stuff. And then we had this batch of revelations about the scale of the animosity between Mr. Khan, he's the departed wealth management chief of Credit Suisse, and the chief executive of Credit Suisse, Chichen Tien, and all of the arguments between the two of them that had been festering for so long and came to a head earlier this year, leading to Mr. Khan's departure. And now, of course, over the weekend, we had this report being delivered to the board by this third-party law firm that had been hired to investigate the circumstances of this spying. And I think the bank very much hoped this would end it. And shareholders had come out in support of Mr. Tiam and also in support of other members of the executive board. And now this. Now it turns out that one of the central figures in this drama has taken his own life. And one begins to wonder whether this is going to open up a whole new batch of inquiries about the extent of the knowledge of the spying scandal that existed at the very top of the Credit Suisse hierarchy. And that's really the key question, because people are beginning to ask, whether the chief operating officer who resigned today, whether really the buck did stop with him, or whether actually Tijentiem might have been aware of some of this surveillance. He, of course, has said absolutely not. And the law firm that investigated this has also said they could find no evidence that he was involved.
3: Questions too for the chairman who approved this highly unusual arrangement, which meant that Iqbal Khan could leave Credit Suisse with virtually no notice period. Um, and of course, the notice period and the gardening leave in place precisely to stop people doing what Credit Suisse suspected Mr. Khan of doing, which was trying to poach clients and employees of Credit Suisse. But tell us a little bit about this pretty lurid background story, the relationship between Mr. TM and Mr. Khan, which includes, as we understand it, altercations at cocktail parties, arguments over trees on neighbouring properties. How did things get so bad between them? Well, that's a very good question, and so far one that no one seems to have an answer to,
1: other than that, as you say, this is a sort of bizarre dispute that at one level is entirely petty and parochial. The pair of them were actually next-door neighbours and had a series of falling outs over issues like trees in front of windows and building works and things like that. And on another level, it's about two of the most powerful and influential people in Swiss finance, if not in global finance and about their rivalry within Credit Suisse. And I think the key element to that is about that this younger man, Iqbal Khan, who is 43, has been a rising star within the bank and had no compunction in saying to Tijan Tiam, the chief executive, who's much older, that he saw himself as a future CEO. And I think for Mr. Tiam, the question was just over when that future might be. I think Mr. Tiam has been feeling a little bit under pressure of late as well, because he's three years into a strategy to overhaul, to restructure the whole of the bank. And although that has borne results in some of the numbers, It hasn't been reflected in the share price, and so there is a little bit of growing disquiet over whether that is working or not. So there's this sort of conflict rivalry, a sort of sense of insecurity that was obviously going on at a professional level, and then led to this breakdown that occurred, as we understand it, in January of this year, when there was a cocktail party at Mr. TM's house, in a very chic area of Zurich called Hurleyberg, on the Gold Coast of Lake Zurich. And Mr. Khan was there, and obviously alcohol had been consumed. And something happened between the two men, a serious row, exactly over what, we're not sure. And they had to be separated. And after that, stopped speaking with each other. And then it wasn't very many months later that Mr. Khan suddenly departed from the bank.
3: Well, a- Developing story and, of course, as we found out recently, a very sad one indeed. Sam, I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you on this in the weeks to come. Thanks a lot. Next up, a story from across the pond, where Wells Fargo, the US bank, has announced Charles Scharf, the current boss of Bank of New York Mellon, as its new chief executive. Joining me to discuss the appointment is Lauren Noonan, our US banking editor. So Laura, who is Charles Sharf and how have analysts and investors reacted to his appointment?
0: So Charlie Scharf is a veteran of the US banking industry. He's worked in the industry for more than 20 years. His name will be well known to many of our listeners. He has obviously most recently been chief executive of Bank of New York Mellon. He's held that role for the last two years. For four years prior to that, he was chief executive of Visa. And then before that, he had a lengthy career at JPMorgan Chase, culminating in him heading up JPMorgan Chase's retail operation. So he's a big name, he has a lot of Wall Street pedigree and he has a lot of experience. Reaction to his appointment has been largely positive. Wells Fargo's shares rose almost 5% the day it was announced and investors and analysts have certainly praised the breadth of his experience. And from a CV perspective, there really isn't anyone better that they could have found for the job. The one thing people have criticised a bit, and we'll come back to this in more detail later is the fact that Charlie Shaw plans to continue to be based in New York, while Wells Fargo is, of course, headquartered in San Francisco, which is a five-hour flight away and I say three-hour time difference. So that is the one thing that has drawn a little bit of criticism, but overall I think people are very happy with the appointment.
3: Wells Fargo has been without a CEO for six months now after the previous boss resigned. Remind us of the events that led up to his exit.
0: So the events that led to the departure of Tim Sloan as Wells Fargo's chief executive have actually been in place, Tim Sloan was appointed to the Wells job back in 2016. At that time, Wells Fargo had just been found to be at the centre of a fake account scandal that really humbled the bank and really rocked the bank to its core. The previous CEO, John Stumpf, was effectively outed because of that. Tim Sloan was put in to replace him and to effectively stabilize the bank and clean things up. Unfortunately things didn't quite go according to plan. So we had the big initial scandal, then we had a series of smaller scandals And Wells has really struggled to put the mis-selling scandal and the fake account scandal behind it. At the same time, Tim Sloan was under a lot of political pressure from quarters like Elizabeth Warren, who were basically saying that he was too much of a company man to really clean up the company. So Tim Sloan decided about six months ago that the bank would be better off without him. So Tim, at that point, announced his plans to retire. And then the hunt began in earnest for a permanent chief executive.
3: Well, that sounds like there's a lot to do in Mr Schaff's intray. What do you think he will focus on in his first year?
0: So, yeah, there's certainly a lot for Charlie to get his hands around. I mean, the main focus for him will be similar to the main focus for Tim, and that will really be about trying to deal with the regulatory situation. Wells Fargo is still operating under an asset cap. That means that it can't increase its balance sheet until it gets things under control and until it convinces regulators to lift that asset cap. So I think that will be a big focus for Charlie in his early days. He may need to take some additional charges. We may see in his early innings a whack of additional charges just to put everything behind him and not to have it follow the bank for so long. We may see some further management changes. We may see some changes to the bank's board just to try to reinvigorate and to really draw a line in the sand and say, right, this is the new Wells Fargo.
3: The search to find a permanent CEO was long and tortured. What were the main barriers?
0: I think six months is probably a long time to look for a CEO, especially when you are without a CEO. There were a number of obstacles to the search. I mean, the problem with taking on a bank that has these kind of major regulatory issues is that you never really know how deep it goes. And for an outsider, that is a particularly challenging thing because even if you weren't there when all these issues occurred, to be constantly uncovering them and constantly having to announce them, it's not a pleasant task and it can lead to just a very, very long slog to turn a bank around. The bank said from the outset they wanted an outsider, but trying to find an outsider who's willing to take it on with all those unknowns, that is a very challenging thing to do. The role also comes with a lot of public scrutiny, so internationally Wells Fargo isn't that big a deal. But if you come to the US, Wells Fargo is central to parts of the US. It is a core lender, it is a core part of Main Street, it's a core part of local economies and local communities. So the politicians in the U.S. really care who runs Wells Fargo and how Wells Fargo does. That means that the person taking it on is going to have a very high public profile here, which is something that not everybody wants. The final thing, of course, is that Wells Fargo is headquartered in San Francisco. Most of the senior bankers live here in New York, and not everyone would actually relish a move to the West Coast. So that was the other issue that they had in trying to fill it.
3: Now we understand that the arrangement has raised some eyebrows given his previous stance on home working. Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Charlie, as some of you may remember, when he was chief executive of Visa, he ended up leaving because he found the commute between New York and San Francisco wasn't feasible. Charlie's family lives in New York. Charlie's family still lives in New York. This time, Charlie isn't even going to try to commute. He has said he will live in New York and run Wells Fargo from here. That's something which some analysts have criticised. It's especially ironic since when Charlie was at Bank of New York, he actually tried to ban working from home. He then later had to row back on that. But it's interesting that Charlie is looking for a level of flexibility himself when he thought that it didn't really work so well in practice. Now, there are a couple of caveats here. I mean, as far as we know, Charlie plans to work from the Wells Fargo offices in New York not from his house in New York. Also, bank CEOs travel a lot, so there will be many weeks where the difference between being based in New York or being based in San Francisco just means the difference between which airport Charlie will take his flights from. So it's not as weird as it sounds, and the US also has some precedent for this. So Bank of America, its chief executive, Brian Moynihan, lives in Boston, and Bank of America is based in Charlotte. So Charlotte and Boston are closer than New York and San Francisco. But it's still a similar principle, a CEO not living where the bank is headquartered.
3: Well, thank you, Laura. And just to let listeners know, I have put in a request to do the banking editor job from Mauritius. Our final story concerns the ongoing debate over the European Central Bank's negative interest rate policy. Last week, we interviewed Jean-Pierre Mistier, the president of the European Banking Federation, who made a punchy intervention on attacks on the ECB by bank executives. Joining me to discuss the interview is Patrick Jenkins, our financial editor. So, Patrick, we've heard a lot of European bank CEOs coming out warning of the dangers of negative rates, but Jean-Pierre Mustier, the president of the European Banking Federation, struck a slightly different tone. He did indeed,
4: yeah. Mr Mustier, he's also the head of Unicredit, the big Italian bank was quite emollient really in what he said he essentially told us and presumably is therefore telling his members that they should stop complaining or at least not only complain about the ills of the environment they find themselves in particularly the negative interest rate environment but should come up with some constructive suggestions as well and just live with it basically. Maybe we could hear exactly what he said on this subject.
2: I think we need to look at things slightly differently in a sense that if we just complain and don't bring solutions or ideas and don't look at the full impact on some of the measures... I mean, you know, it's too easy to accuse the bankers, you know, not to do the right thing and behave properly. So bankers have to be extremely careful about what they say and the way they act. So, you know, banks need to improve their profitability. That is very clear, and because their model is changing. I mean, you know, they need to process the change in the model, which is a difficult exercise, which uh, takes time, which can, you know, go through very bottom-up actions, could improve the client satisfaction, could improve the cost base. But if you improve the cost base, let's be very clear about what it means. It means, at the end, cutting jobs. And I think we have to translate, uh, you know, banks need to cut costs. You know, there needs to be a transformation. It means cutting jobs. So it needs to be done in a socially responsible way as well. Now,
3: he welcomed some of the relief that the ECB offered to banks in the form of tiering that is effectively excluding some of their reserves from the negative rates and also an extension of the cheap funding scheme known as TLTRO. But he also suggested that the ECB consider some more radical measures, did he not, and sent a sort of semaphore message, if you like, to the incoming president, Christine Lagarde.
4: Yeah, it's very interesting, the timing, actually, of this message from Mr. Moustier. I mean, it obviously coincides with him taking over as head of the European Banking Federation recently, but it also comes at a time of the handover of power at the ECB from Mario Draghi to Christine Lagarde. And I don't think that's a coincidence. He doesn't want to make trouble, as we've said, with kind of relatively emollient tone on many things. But he does have some concrete suggestions or requests or demands, depending on how strongly you read his language. I suppose one of the most striking is around the scope of the monetary policy and particularly how far quantitative easing goes, which has been very much focused on the purchase of government bonds up to now, which he argues could absolutely be extended into the corporate bonds sphere and particularly into bank bonds. Now, that would obviously dramatically lower the cost of funding for banks beyond you know the already pretty low level, and it would be a big step for Men's Lagarde to take, but he's put it on the table. And I suppose the other interesting thing that he alludes to is exactly how efficient or he's suggesting it's inefficient the way in which these negative rates are passed on into the real economy because of course there isn't a huge amount of effect if banks are penalized with negative rates themselves but don't pass those on to their clients and I think he's more or less hinting that the ECB should tell banks to pass on negative rates to their customers certainly corporate customers I think he realizes it would be politically impossible to instruct the passing on of negative rates to retail customers but that whole idea of the transmission mechanism for negative rates and therefore you know the effectiveness of these policies in the real economy is something that he clearly feels very strongly about. And here's what he had to say both about the scope of QE and the transmission
2: mechanism. It could be as well helped by the regulator who could say, look, you know, there's a a need to have a a more efficient transmission mechanism. So let's make sure that there is a, a negative rate impact which can be fluently passed to the end client. Some politicians came out against that, saying we're going to prevent banks from passing negative rates, if you look at some country. they saying, you know, if the ECB wants to have a very efficient transmission mechanism, maybe more clarity about how it can be transmitted to the end users could be needed.
3: Now... Those proposals, radical as they are, are probably not going to win universal support across every single European bank. Indeed, run counter to some of the noises we've heard coming out of the likes of Deutsche Bank and ING and so on. But there was one area where you could rely on him to be a traditional bank lobbyist, if you like, and that was on the subject of regulation. He had some punchy things to say on that, including I think he wants an urgent review to be done by the ECB into the cumulative effect of all the regulations and how that is effectively making the banking sector in Europe uninvestable or less attractive for US investors.
4: Yes, absolutely. It's a familiar refrain, as you say, from bankers that they complain about the coordination or lack of coordination from various authorities. In particular, Mr Mustier was taking a swipe at the fact that within Europe, there are multiple organisations, both European organisations and international ones, that are influencing particularly their capital requirements, but also other regulatory rules. And here's exactly what he had to say.
2: If we want to have a banking sector which is seen as a true banking sector you need to make sure that you have less domestic decision basically and so that regulation are basically much more present than directive which you know create divergence mechanically today I think it's probably time to take a step back, look at the impact on banks, look at how to make things more efficient, with the drive, which is not to say, oh, we need to have less capital, we need to have less requirement. You know, previously, as I said, we could have even more regulation, but, you know, to make sure that banks can attract capital.
3: So there you have it, negative interest rates, an issue that, like so many others, divides people in Europe depending on which country they live in. I expect we'll hear a lot more on this topic in the weeks and months to come. Patrick, thank you. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Sam, Laura and Patrick and our guest Jean-Pierre Mustier. And thank you too for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.